You know, we live in a day that's full of compromise. We do. I mean, there are no such thing as absolutes anymore. There is no right or wrong. It's, I mean, you know, like uh, even for those of you who have teenagers or have been around teenagers, there's a phrase that we've just adopted as a culture, and it's whatever. (laughs) Well, yeah, but this is what's right. Ah, whatever. That's good for you. But what's good for you is good for you, but that doesn't mean it's what's good for me. So there are no standards in our culture many times today. You know, and many times we look at, you know, I was thinking about, you know, depending on where you may fall in this, you may be somebody who's a, a younger person, a teenager, you may be somebody in kind of the middle section of your life, or you may be on the upper end of your life, and many times we call it generational clashes. You know, like, I don't like my dad's music. You know, there's nothing wrong with his music necessarily, but it's just not my music. I don't dress the way my dad did, or does for that matter. I definitely don't dress like he did when he was my age, for certain. You know, and many times we look at that and we talk about, well, that's a generational clash. Well, truly, it's culture. Because whether you realize it or not, I've seen some pictures of Brother Ray back in the day with his nice suits. Polyester suits and some big collars. Well, how many of you know he doesn't dress like that today? I mean, I mean but back in the day, I mean, you were... You were a sharp man, looking good. You know, why? Because that was culture. I mean, you know, and you even see this where, where people, some people have issue with the way that I'm dressed right now. And they would say that you're discrediting the pulpit. And of course, my response is always, well, Jesus didn't wear a suit. As a matter of fact, he wore sandals. So at least I got some shoes on. So I'm not up here like it's got a flip-flops or, you know, I mean, and I've had people legitimately tell me that and they say that it's compromise you know okay well the lord can talk to me about that if if he needs to and i've asked i've actually i mean i've actually prayed and asked the lord about that because so many people have had comments and all these types of things and yet we see in our culture that everything is up for debate today everything is I mean, it seems everywhere we turn, we see it from the top down. We see it from government. I mean, you know, I remember uh, even, you know, and, and as I've talked, uh, like I can remember one time I was talking with my pastor, Pastor Sam, who's older than my parents. And uh, we were talking and we were just talking about the difference of generation from, what, from really his generation to my generation. And I told him, I said, you know, we were talking just about leading and how things have changed. And, uh, and I told him, I said, you know, back when you were my age, a leader could stand up and just say, let's take the mountain. And people would just follow. They, they trusted their leader. They're going to go up the mountain. Let's charge. Let's take the hill. I said, today it's very different because my generation and even those behind me, even more and more and more, question all authority. Yeah. Why? Because when I was a teenager, we had a president who said, well, you know, I smoked, but I didn't inhale. <laughs> everybody, including every teenager on the planet, knew he was lying. He also made other statements that everybody knew he was lying. Well, he was supposed to be the authority. And so it creates this distrust. And so we see that in our culture. Well, what happens when you begin to challenge authority? And we see it very much in our culture today. I mean, we have people in in part of, you know, that's part of our church here that are in our school systems. Incredibly difficult. Why? Because, I mean, my sister went back into the schoolroom here six months ago, and she had students that came to her and said, hey, we'll run you off just like we did everybody else in her first week back. I can't imagine being a teacher today. How in the world do you discipline when there's no respect of any type of authority? I mean, it's just unbelievable. 
that we see this. And yet there's compromise and we're being pushed on and pulled on all the time by this culture that we live in. And so, you know, there's this idea that we see multiple times. Jesus even made reference to this in John 17. He makes a statement and there's several times throughout the New Testament that we see this. Is that we're in this world but we're not of this world. Well, some people have taken that to mean that, well, I'm in this world, but I'm going to totally just go get me a hut out in the middle of the woods. I'm not going to deal with anybody. I'm not going to touch. And so what? They totally isolate themselves thinking that somehow they can keep the world out. We're influenced by culture all the time. If you don't believe me, you can be sitting on the couch watching TV and all of a sudden a commercial comes on. You're like, pizza sounds good. (laughs) Why? Because you just got influenced. See a commercial for a new car and all of a sudden the car that you've had isn't good enough. Like, oh, I need that. My car would be better. My house would be better. My marriage would be better. My kids would be better. All these things would be better if I had this or that. So how do we live in the tension of living in this life and yet really spiritually speaking, we're not actually, our residence is not here. The Bible says that we are temporary residents. We are here briefly, but there is an eternity that we will live. But how do we live in the tension, live in the balance between loving God, living according to his standard, and yet still loving those around us and reaching those around us? And and there is this tension here. And so, you know, let me say this another way because I believe this will help communicate it as well. Is how do we live according to our convictions as believers, as followers of Christ, and not condemn those around us? And even go to the point of loving them. Because we're not just called to tolerate people. Now, it's much harder to love people than it is to tolerate people. But yet, we're called to love people. And if we're called to do it, that means God's grace is sufficient for us that we can actually do it. But how do we live in a culture and in a place where we can reach into people's lives? And so what we're going to be doing is we're, today we're going to look at two people. Number one being Daniel, number two being Jesus. But we're going to look at the life of Daniel because Daniel was a Jewish man who had been taken into captivity. In other words, he had been taken from his homeland into a pagan environment, into a completely new culture. And that culture begins to try to mold Daniel and his friends very much into a new image. And I'm going to show you how this happens because if we're not careful, it's very subtle and it's very slick. But we can fall prey to really the influence of culture around us. You're like, what is culture? It's language. It's attitudes. It's the system that we work in today. And every, you know, like the United States and even in, for that matter, I've lived in multiple cities. I've never been in two cities that had the same culture. There are unique things to this city that are different than Shreveport, which I would have thought they're going to be pretty similar because they're only 100 miles apart. Totally different. There's a different culture here. And even, in, even going even further in than that, there's a different culture in every church. I mean, we got a church next door, literally, a couple hundred yards away. They got a different culture than we do. It doesn't mean that we're right and they're wrong. It just means we're different. You know, and so I want to look. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn or click or however you do this today. You can go to Daniel chapter 1. It'll also be up on the screens for you. But we're going to read some scriptures here. And then we're going to talk about a few things here as we see what begins to happen. It says in verse 1, says, During the third year 
of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So what you've got, Judah is the Jewish state. Babylon is the pagan state. So you've got, you've got King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king, Judah's governor, if you will, really. But then you've got King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king over Babylon. And it says that he came to Jerusalem, which was a city inside of Judea, and he began to besiege it. He went to war. He went and picked a fight. Verse 2 says, The Lord gave him victory over King Joachim of Judah and permitted him to take some of, this, or to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. Now, some people don't like this because they're like, well, why would God allow a foreign king to come in? Because Israel had rebelled. It was really their sin that opened up the door. God, let me say it this way. Here, many times it says that God gave him victory. This is really more accurately uh, translated is that God allowed him to come. In other words, you know, think about Psalms 91. When I abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Think, okay, so when I stay under the umbrella, I don't get wet. When it rains, I can stay under the umbrella and not get wet. Or not as bad anyways. But I can choose to say, forget this umbrella and I'm going to get soaked. That's not God's fault. So this is what's happening in this moment. A foreign king has come and waged war against Jerusalem. The Lord allows him and permits him. And not only does he come in and just start uh, ransacking everything, he goes into the temple of God and he begins to take the sacred objects. It says, so Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So he, he's taking the sacred elements of, of the church, if you will, and now he's taking it and setting them up in where he worships, which is a foreign God, a pagan God. It says, then the king, in verse 3, says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, key, the chief of, uh, of his staff, to bring, all the, or to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought from Babylon as captives. So these guys are slaves. But what the king does is he says, look, I want you to go pick the cream of the crop for me. Go find the best, smartest. And we're about to read this in verse 4. He says, select only the strong, the healthy, and good-looking men. I want the best of the best. Like, I, I want the guys who are, the, they can't just be smart. They got to be good looking. They got to be sharp. I mean, these got to be like the top level of people. He says in the second part of verse 4, he says, Make sure they are well versed in every branch of learning, are gifted in knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. This is a key word. He says, Train these young men. In the language and the literature of Babylon. Train them. Let me, let me give you another word for that. Brainwash them. Change their thinking. I want them to be smart so they can learn. But I want them to learn a new way of thinking and a new culture. I have something else that I need them to do. But I don't need them thinking like Jewish people. I need them thinking like Babylonian people. So there's a challenge in this moment because the king is not just saying, hey, bring me the best and the brightest and let the, let's, let's, let's just integrate them. No, what he's wanting to do is to completely transform them in a moment, like in a short season. Why? Because he has an agenda for them. He, he's trying to advance his kingdom and he wants to use these young men to do this. In verse 5, it says, The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. In other words, they're eating off of his table. It says, They were trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. 
So in other words, they would come under the king and begin to serve in his inner circle. It says in verse 6, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. All for, so he goes and he finds these four excellent guys that all fit the mold. Man, they all they fit this, this part right here that, that, that the king is wanting for his own purposes. In other words, what he's wanting to do is to take free people and make them slaves for his purpose and for his blessing, his benefit, if you will. And so, but what happens, and, and really what for us, and the reason that this matters for us, there are several reasons. But one of the main things that we have to understand for us today Because it may not be a king called Nebuchadnezzar, but you know, Nebuchadnezzar is actually a type of Satan in the Old Testament. He is still at work today. He is still wanting to change our way of thinking. He's very adept at it. He works very hard to press us into a mold. That's what the word, uh, you know, conform. God, God wants to transform us. The enemy wants to conform us. In other words, that word conform means to be pressed into a mold under great pressure. That's what the enemy is trying to do to us. So we have to understand the day in which we live. The Bible says in the Old Testament that the sons of Issachar were wise because they understood the times and the seasons. In other words, let me say another. They understood the culture in which they lived. And they understood what God's purpose was even during that season. In that moment. Well, we have to be wise. But see, if we don't understand what time and the season of life and the culture in which we live, and we don't understand God's word, which is of utmost importance. This is why God's word is so important. Our culture will have an effect on us, even though we don't realize it. And it happens very fast. Very quickly. And so we will just adapt to fit in. See, culture has an agenda, but it's not just the world at large. It's the devil behind culture pushing, pressing constantly so that he can have his way in our lives. Now, we talked about these four young men, these four Jewish boys. It's, uh, you know, and we were reading here about these boys and what the Bible says about them. And, you know, and so we see where it's very significant what is happening because even when we look and it says, well, they were eating from the king's table. Well, they were things that were forbidden by their culture. They were on a kosher diet. Well, the king would eat animals that were sacrificed to this pagan god. Well, that violated Jewish law. They were to eat nothing that was considered to be unclean. Well, meat that had been sacrificed to a foreign to any idol was forbidden to be eaten. I mean, there was so pretty much everything that the king says, "Hey, we're gonna, I'm gonna set you up." I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to put you into my palace. I'm going to give you a buffet like you've never seen. The problem is, is that the king says yes, but God had said no. So Daniel and, these, and his friends here have a choice. Are they going to compromise and just go with the flow or are they going to make a stand? And it can be very challenging for us even in the day in which we live. So we see this, and as it goes on, in verse 7, we see this. It says that um, the chief of staff renamed them with Babylonian names. He renamed them. Now, why would you do that? This was common practice in the day, by the way. Think of it this way. 
we all understand this term, branding. Somebody goes and buys some cows, what do they do? What are they doing? They're staking their claim. They're putting a new name on the hip of that steer. Why? Because it's now property of somebody else. They're putting their mark so that no matter what happens, you can always go look at that mark and say, oh, I know who that belongs to. See a cow running down the road, you can go catch him. Oh, well, he belongs down here. I know that symbol. Well, Daniel's name gets changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar. Hananiah's, it was called Shadrach. Mishael gets turned to Meshach. And Azariah, his name is turned into Abednego. Now, these names are significant. And let me say this to you this morning. Is that you've been given names. But it may not be your real name. You may have adapted or taken a name that God did not give you. The Bible says that when he formed you in his mother's womb, he knew you and he named you. He gave you a purpose, a design. He had a reason for you to exist right now. You're not some cosmic anomaly that happened just by chance. God says, before you ever breathed, I knew you. He says, and I've called you and I've named you. Well, culture also wants to name us. And that's exactly what's happening in this moment. Now, I want to show you this because, and I said a moment ago, is this, is that names are a sign of ownership. But names are all something that we believe about ourselves. You're stupid. You may have bought into that. Who do you think you are? You can't do that. Limitation. You're from the wrong side of the tracks to be doing that. You're not good enough. Can't you do anything right? Those are names. And those names have weight. And we can, and if we're not mindful of them, we will take them on as our, as our new identity. Although God has an identity for us, we can take on that new identity. See, culture has an agenda, if you will. Now, the enemy's working in the background, but culture has an, an, an agenda. And we see this. And the first thing that, that culture wants to do is it wants to change your identity. Right. You go look at the first attack on Jesus that the enemy had upon him. It was an attack on his identity. If you are the son of God. Yeah. See, Jesus was the son of God. That was not up for debate. And yet the enemy challenges him that, in that way. And says, if you are. Yeah. It wasn't if. It was. But yet the enemy, that one little word, that one little question, if, prove it. If you're really who you say you are, he challenges it. And culture is still doing that to us today. If you're really a Christian, you wouldn't act it like that. Anybody ever heard that? I thought you were a Christian. Maybe I'm not. See how quick that happens? I mean, that fast. There's that doubt that comes. and, And all of a sudden, you know, we get that moment. Somebody challenges us in our faith, our belief, our confession, whatever it may be. Well, I thought you were a faith person. Maybe I'm not. See, that's that quick you get renamed. I was a faith person. Now maybe, I'm, maybe I, you got that question, that doubt in your heart. Now let me give you the definitions of their names because they're significant. Because this still happens. Daniel is, means this. It means God is my judge. That's what the name Daniel means. God is my judge. The name Belteshazzar means this. Lady, protect the king. So let me say it this way. 
Gender identity is not a new concept. Something's been around for a long time. Here's a man that they've given a woman's name to. Not only that, he has taken um, Daniel and he said that God is my judge. So he made God the focus of Daniel's life. And now what? The focus becomes protect the king. So the focus moves Daniel from by his name. Moves the focus from God to man. And yet Daniel by his God-given name is God is my judge. In other words, God is the one I'm accountable to. Now, Daniel lives up to his real name. And we see this. We won't look at it today. But Daniel in the lion's den. He would not bow to man. Why? Because he said, God will, choose, will judge me. And God's judgment was, he's an innocent man. And he closed the mouth of the lions. God judged him as righteous. So Daniel lived up to that name. Another way to look at this is that they were changing Daniel's name so he would lose a sense of who he was. They were trying to, con- to confuse him. Hananiah means this. It's Yahweh has been gracious. God's been good to me. Michelle means this. Or Meshach. Mish, uh, sorry. Shadrach. Is one says that I am fearful of God. From God has been good. God has been gracious to me. To now I'm afraid of God. This is not fearful in the, the good sense of honor and reverence. This is fearful, like I'm afraid and timid and and I need to get away from him. So he goes from having an understanding that God has been good to me to now I need to run from God. It's a challenge to his spirituality and his understanding of God. Michelle, his name is, who is what God is? I like that. Who can be compared to God? God is on my side. And so they take him and they name him Meshach, which is one that says that I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. So in other words, they take him from being confident into being a coward. They've stripped him of his strength. So these weren't just random names that they had given them. These were very targeted. Why? Because they were challenging the identity of who God had called them, created them, destined them to be. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Man, I've got, I've got some hope. I've got a helper. Abednego means servant of Nebo. Again, that shift from God would help me. So I'm just a servant and I only get what, what he allows me to have. He's redefining his destiny, his future. All of a sudden, God's no longer in control of your future. A man is. He redefines his future. See, culture wants you to believe something about yourself that's just not true. Now I'm going to make this personal in my life. This is why this this part really resonates with me so much. My name, David, means beloved. I used to have a mug as a kid. Had my name, the definition of my name. How many of you had one of those mugs? And it told me who I was. You want to know what the lie of the enemy was to me? You're rejected. Polar opposite. Going from beloved, a beloved son, to being rejected. Why would the enemy do that? Because I was called to lead. See, and here's the thing. Because I'm called to lead, I can, I'll, I'll lead no matter what. The question becomes, how am I going to lead? 
Am I going to lead from an unhealthy place of rejection? Therefore, I overcompensate and try to puff myself up and, and you know, I'm the man. I've got to over, you know, I've got to prove that I'm not rejected. But when I understand that I'm loved by God, not because of what I do, but because of who I am, now I can lead from a, from a healthy place. So the question is not strict because the enemy is what? He doesn't want me to live healthy. He doesn't want me to live in a place of strength. He wants me to live and to lead from a place of insecurity and, and limitation and, and, and really just protect, self-protect, self-protect, self-protect. That's the mode he wants me to live in. And the problem is, is that I found out that that was not my true name. I had to come back and it took me a long time to learn that I truly am beloved. Because why? Because I had been brainwashed to think something different. I never felt like I fit in. I had all the friends I wanted. I wore the right clothes. I had the right girlfriend. I had all those things when I was a teenager. Very influential time of my life. Girl would break up with me. My life would fall apart. I was rejected. I remember as a freshman in high school, I've shared this, I think, but it's been a while. As a freshman in high school in Woodshop, I took wood, you know, at the school I went to. And I remember they had a mirror. It was leaned up against the wall. And I went and looked at myself from right here down. And here was the thought I had. What makes me different than everybody else? Because I look just like they do. See, I knew in my heart, I'm trying to be somebody that God has not called me to be. And it wasn't about the clothes. It wasn't about, it wasn't about any of those things. I was never supposed to fit into a world system. It wasn't about the outward. It was about my heart. See, and, and the enemy wanted me to feel rejected when God had said, you're beloved. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that your natural name is necessarily your God-given name. We actually talked about this a little bit in our men's small group this last semester. You need to find out who God, what he thinks about you. You ought to ask him. God, how do you see me? I mean, I'll give you an example of this from Scripture. There was Gideon, guy hiding in a hole, and God says, you're a mighty man of war. Mm -mm. (laughs) No, sir. God sees us differently than we see ourselves. And yet culture wants to change us and mold us into somebody different. And many times, the very area that the enemy will attack the hardest is the very area that you're called to. It's the very area that you're called to bring glory to God in. See, the enemy fought me in, my, in the area of my identity to know who I was. Why? So that I would never become what God had called me to be. He was trying to, to stop the call of God on my life. You all have a call of God on your life. Let me say it this way. There's a problem that you're called to solve. Somewhere, some way, there's a deficiency that God created you to feel. There's a space that God has your name on and nobody else in all of human history can fill that space. And God thought it was so important for you to be born at this time that he said right now is the perfect time for them to exist. In all of the span of history, now is the, the best time for their life. But yet the enemy will come and wound you. In the very place that God wants to use you the most. But here's the good news. God is still a redeeming God. 
God buys back those scars. God buys back those things that the enemy intended for harm. For what purpose? For his good. To bring glory. Because the, God does this as he takes that which was broken, redeems it back, and then he uses it for the enemy in a greater way than the enemy ever thought to prove that he's God. And so culture, the enemy, will fight us at the area of our identity. He's trying to rename you. The question is, is whose name are you identifying with? Maybe it's not necessarily a name, but maybe it's a circumstance, a situation in your life. Well, I got divorced. Yeah, but God can redeem that. Yeah, but you don't know about my, 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 my sin, my past. Yeah, but that's redeemable. Doesn't mean that the past changes, but what it does is it means the effects of the past can change. I don't have to be a prisoner. You don't have to be a prisoner to your past. So you don't have to identify, well, you know, I just, I'll never measure up. That's just, I could never do those things. I had a dream. I had a desire. I had these things in my life, but I'm disqualified from that. Says who? The enemy? Who wants you to be limited? Or the God who's created you to function and not just function, but to flourish? Daniel chapter, going back to Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. So verse 7, they changed their names. In verse 8 it says, Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. So here's a good thing for us. When areas of compromise come, we need to already have our mind made up. Yes. Yes. Don't wait, you know. I'll just tell you this about me. And when, when I was dating Dara, we were in our 20s, I guess, and we loved God and this and that. And my dad one time came to me and he said, David, I need to talk to you. And I was like, okay. And he said, look, I trust you and Dara. He said, but y'all need to be careful. Because she lived a long ways away. And so I would drive her home. He's like, y'all need, y'all need to be careful how much time you're spending alone at night together. He's like, I trust you, but you got a flesh. He's like, and the enemy's looking. Yes. And he, he made the statement, this will make you laugh. He said, son, it's just biology. <laughs> so, which was funny coming from my dad. I'm just kind of like, do you know what biology is? Because he probably didn't go to that class in high school, I can tell you. But I understood what he meant. It's not that I don't trust you. It's not that I don't trust her. But if you put yourself in a situation enough, compromise is going to come. And what he was saying is you need to make up your mind and set some standards now. Because... Well, that was a decision I had to make. I had to pre-make that decision. Again, it's not because he didn't think I was a good kid or a good man, I guess, at that point. Not that he didn't think I didn't love God, but he's just like, hey, you're human. And you can fall like any other man. There's a lot of them before you. Daniel determines not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. So interesting. He asked. So many times today as believers, we just want to start barking. I'm a Christian. I don't do this. I don't do that. You want to make a scene. And yet Daniel just asked. He says, look, I, I made a determination, man. I'm not going to defile myself. But he asked the, the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. See, culture will ask you to compromise your standards. Let me say this another way. Culture will ask you to sin. People don't like that word, but it's still in the Bible. You're like, well, what sin? 
I can give you two definitions that are as basic as anything can come up, give you. Number one is anything that displeases God. Anything. I don't have to give you a laundry list. It's anything that displeases God. Here's the second one. Because some people, and in all fairness, because of lack of understanding or knowledge of the word of God, have no idea what God says in his word. But God did give us a conscience. And when I do something that I know is wrong, and I violate my conscience, that is sin. Romans 14, 29 says it, talking specifically about eating things that are permissible, not permissible. He says, if you do something that you know in your heart is wrong, for you, it is sin. And so sin is determined between not everything, but many times between me and the Lord. Don't watch that TV show. If I watch that TV show, that's sin. Why? Because there's something in me. I just need to turn the channel on. Something just don't feel right. And I just sit there. That's sin. And it doesn't have to be some dirty. I mean, it could be something as simple as turn it off. It's too important to you right now. But Lord, it's only got a few minutes. We're right here at the end. And what? It becomes this juggle match, right? Culture is constantly. That's one reason why I do 21 days of prayer and fasting to start the year. Because I want to unplug from culture. I want to step back and be like, let me get my priorities back where they need to be. Let me prioritize the word of God, the presence of God in my life. It's one of the reasons I do it every year. It's just for that reason. Because I can compromise, you can compromise, and not even know it. Not even realize it. So anytime culture begins to shift, what do we have to do? We have to reaffirm our convictions. Come back to the word of God. We shouldn't be looking for how far can I go. If you're looking, you're already in trouble. God's word doesn't change. The Bible says it was established at the foundations of the earth. His word stands true. He doesn't change his mind. I mean, God doesn't say, well, I know you live in a different day today. So, you know, if you want to run around on your spouse, you know, it's acceptable. God still says, no, that's not acceptable. It's not. I mean, there are things that the Lord holds us to. In verse 9 of Daniel 1, we read, and he says, Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. He gave Daniel favor. That's really what that is. He says, But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered you to eat his food and his wine. He says, If you become pale and thin compared to the other young people your age, he says, I'm afraid that the king will have me beheaded. So in other words, he's like, Daniel, I, I don't want to make you eat this food, but if y'all look sick, man, it's my head. Like, I'm the one who's going to get punished for this. And Daniel spoke with the attendant, verse 11, um, who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look over Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. He says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. So says, at the ten, end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. It says, then make your decision in light of what you see. It says in verse 14, the attendant agreed with Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. In other words, the attendant says, Daniel, I'm going to give you a short leash. You ever heard that phrase? I'm going to keep you on a short leash. I'm going to keep you close. I'm going to got a watchful eye on you. Because, Daniel, I ain't going down for you. But if you don't want to defile yourself, prove it. Prove that it's, that it's not going to come back on me. 
See, what's happening in this moment is that culture creates confrontation. It always does. It's like I said earlier. Well, I thought you said you were a Christian. You shouldn't have said that. You're right. I shouldn't have. And I am a Christian. But yet that doubt comes. Well, maybe, maybe I'm not as saved as I maybe thought I was. See, the enemy comes in quick. And there's always this confrontation. And they're going to challenge. Culture is going to challenge your beliefs. Our, in, in our culture today, culture wants to debate. They just want to have arguments. Nobody wins debates, by the way. The best thing that we as believers can do is to live our life in a way that honors God, love people to the best of our ability, and let our light so shine before men. We don't have to prove the point. Our life will prove the point. But yet culture will push us into a confrontation. You ever had somebody question or challenge what you believe? Why do you believe the Bible? It's old. It might be old, but it's still alive. It's still powerful. It hasn't changed. See, we have to learn to respond the right way. In in today's culture, and really when I'm talking about these debates, we really, especially... In the church, we have two extremes most of the time that people will go to when it comes to dealing with culture. Number one is very dogmatic. Another word for that is legalistic. Hardline, I don't know why I believe it, but dadgummit, I believe it. Can't even tell you why. I heard somebody saying it sounded like God to me, so that's what it is. We all laugh, but we probably all have things like that. We're like, I'm not sure why I believe that, but I believe that. But this is how it comes across. I'm right and you're wrong. And really what it communicates is, I don't care that you're wrong, but you're going to go to hell. It's not very compassionate. Look, I'm good. And I'm glad I'm good. You're stuck. You're going to figure it out, I hope. But, but that's what legalism produces. Look at the Pharisees. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you're like dead men's bones in a casket. I mean, he was... Mm, you know, it's not a sucker punch, but I'm sure it probably felt like it a little bit. So we can err to that side, which is too far. But truth is still truth and truth is still good. I like the, one of the statements that I wrote down that this uh, other pastor had said. He says, we can be right, but not helpful to anyone. We can be right. We can stake our, you know. Go run up a hill and put our flag in the... Yeah, you're right. But you ain't helped nobody else either in this moment. You ain't helped anybody get back to Jesus. Why? Because you've repelled them from Jesus. From the very one who could help them. You've pushed them away. See, the second extreme is this that we see. Is that in the name of love... Because, oh, well, God loves everybody. God does love everybody. God's desire is that all would come to the knowledge of Christ and be saved. That is true. But this is the message that we say is that anyone, anyone can come, just come like you are. You don't have to change. God's not going to expect anything of you. There's no standard. You just live by the grace of God and he's just going to take care of everything. And well, The problem is there's still scripture. There's still truth that says there's a standard. I didn't write the book. I don't get to change the book. It's not my word. It's God's word. Now, God's Word talks about grace a lot. 
But there is a tension. You could, I mean, you could say there's a balance, but it's really a tension between the two. And Daniel had to learn how to live in that tension, in that moment between the two. They're saying, here's some food, eat it. He says, I can't defile myself. Can I do this instead? God gives him favor even in a pagan environment. My heart says I shouldn't do this or go there or whatever it may be. I want to pay attention. That's the Holy Spirit working in me. I don't want to violate my conscience. See, Daniel had to find a balance between his convictions and the ability to influence his generation. See, we have to do the same. We have to learn to live by conviction and yet not lose influence. Because influence is the only way we reach people for the, with the gospel. You know, there's an old phrase that I heard long before I was ever a preacher. And yet, for a long time, I had it stuck on the end of a bookshelf where I could see it every time I studied. And it's a statement that goes like this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's true for all of us. People don't care how much you know about the Bible. They don't care how much you know about God until they know that you actually care for them. They don't give a rip to listen to it. But when we can come relationally to them, love them well. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus was the friend of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers and all these people who by culture were unclean. That's why he got accused of being a drunk and all these other things. Yet, he was a rabbi and so he couldn't drink. So how could he be a drunk? But that's what they accused him of. See, Jesus had learned how to never compromise himself. The Bible says in John 1.14, it says, So the word became human and made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Other translations say, say it this way, is that he was full of truth or grace and truth. And he says, And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Truth and grace. He was full of both, not some of one and some of the other. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. Now, in the next few minutes, I want to, to hopefully help you see some things in, this morning about this. Because what is truth? It's God's standard. It's God's word. John 17, 17 says this. It says, make them holy by your truth. Grace doesn't make you holy. Truth does. Like, I thought I was saved by grace. You are. But it's truth that makes the difference. He said, teach them your word, which is truth. So truth is God's standard. Not ours, not cultures. Truth, real truth, is God's standard. He wrote the manual for life. That's the standard. I wouldn't take my truck and go get a manual for a Japanese car. My truck was not made in Japan. It's going to be kind of hard to fix my truck with the wrong manual. It's going to be hard to fix your life with the wrong manual. With the wrong label on your life. Grace is simply this. It's God's favor on your life. God favored you. That's why he favored me. That's why I'm saved. See, God was favorable to us even when we weren't favorable. He said, while you were yet sinners, I died for you. That's what the Bible says. See, biblical grace is this, is God loves you just the way you are right now. But he also loves you too much to leave you that way. 
There's growth that has to come. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says that God saved you by his grace when you believed. But you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. It says salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. If salvation was based off of our good works, we would get pride. We would get prideful about it. It's all about what Jesus did, not about what we've done. Now I want to share with you a few statements that, this, that were actually in the book that goes along with this message. I thought were so good. But he says, without truth, we are corrupt. How do we know that we're sinners? Is it just because of conviction? The Bible says is that we know that we're sinners because of the law. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 8. Romans 7, Romans 8. He said the law pointed us and said, hey, so if we just have grace and no truth, we're corrupt. We're dead in our sins. We're, we may be forgiven, but man, we're, we're just stuck like Chuck getting out of it. I'm just going to keep repeating it. A simple way to say that is without truth, we'd just be carnal. We'd just be left to the flesh. But without grace, we're condemned. If we don't have grace, we're all condemned. It's just the reality. And that's what happens many times is people give truth, but people, they only give truth, and so therefore people get condemned. Why? Because there's no grace. There's a lot of teaching today that's along that line. They're going to beat you into heaven because they don't talk about grace. There's no such thing as grace. If God wanted you saved, he'll get you saved. He's already predestined you to be saved is actually the argument. That just doesn't line up with all of Scripture. It lines up with a Scripture, but you've got to read the whole counsel of Scripture to understand. Another way to say this is without truth, we just become worldly. But here's the problem. If, if we don't have truth, we also have no answers for the world. We have no answers for our family. We have no answers for our co-workers. We have no answers for our neighbors. Because we don't have truth. We just, well, God will help you. God will help you. You're, you'll get there. I don't know when, but you're going to get there. I mean, let me give you a, a, a practical example. Your neighbor is sick and you don't even tell them that God would heal them. The truth heals them. But not if they don't know it. So the truth is very necessary. We don't give away truth in the name of grace. Christ himself was full of truth and grace. Without grace, we become judgmental. You could say it like this. I messed up, but I'm better than so-and-so. I'm not like them. Oh, I know I got my stuff, but... That's what happens when we're just, I love this. He wrote this in the book and such a great statement. I've heard it said different ways, but I really like the way that he put these together. He says, truth without grace is just mean. It's just mean. I heard somebody else say it this way. Is that if you give truth without grace, it's like taking somebody into surgery without giving them anesthesia first. Like you're sick, but man, we got to get you in there. Start cutting. You ain't cutting on nothing. You better go call the anesthesiologist. Truth without grace is mean. I love this. I think this is so powerful, the way he's, he, that he communicated this. It says, grace without truth is meaningless. What's the point? If there's no truth, what, why? Because truth with grace 
is good medicine. Truth with grace is good medicine. See, grace invites us to be free. Be God saying it this way. I know what you did, but you're still welcome. I'll still work for you. So grace invites us, but it's truth that sets us free. The Bible says is that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not grace alone. Truth. We have to live in this tension between this and these worlds that we live. It's a hard balance sometimes to find. How do I maintain what I believe the scriptures to be, what the convictions of my heart are, and what culture is asking me to conform to? Those labels that it's placed upon me, those names that I've bought into that aren't the names that God has given me. I want to read you one one passage of scripture where I believe that it's probably one of the clearest pictures that we see of grace and truth in the same moment. It comes out of uh, John chapter 8. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm just going to read all the way through this. We're going to read 11 verses here from verse 1 to verse 11. Many of you will know the story, but John 8, 1. Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back up at the and at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, put the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. So they put her in front of the crowd. Says, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Truth. Says to stone her, but what do you say? Verse 6, as they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. I've heard lots of assumptions as to what he was writing. We're not quite sure. We don't know what he was writing, but we know he was writing something because it says he was writing something. He wasn't doodling, drawing pictures in the dirt. Apparently, if he was writing something, it was some words. It says in verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. They just kept getting louder and louder. Jesus is there to teach. They're interrupting. Now, there's lots of dynamics going on. How did they catch this woman in the act? Why were they around? It's just a thought. Verse 7. Chances are one of them was. Again and said. Verse 7. It says they kept demanding an answer. And so he stood up again and said. All right. Because they're trying to trick Jesus. But Jesus was a master. Jesus. And think about this. Now I just want. I just want. Because this may slant your, your thought on this. Did Jesus not have the fullness of the power of the spirit? Could he not have looked at every one of those Pharisees and read their mail? And just said, hey, well, you were with so-and-so last night, so why are you trying to put her out here today? He could have. He could have stood up and just started naming stuff. He could have. And yet he doesn't. Let me say it this way in a more modern term. He doesn't put all of them on blast, okay? He just says, all right, y'all are right. She deserves to be stoned. But I tell you what, this is how we're going to do this. Let the one who has never sinned be the one to throw the first stone. What brilliance. Says then he stooped down and he began to write in the dirt again. What's he writing? I don't know. But I can see what happens as he's writing. Says in verse 9, when his accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. 
Maybe he was writing some names and looking up, you know. <laughs> really? Y'all? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just, just, just the way I see it in my mind, you know. In verse 10, it says, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Now, I want you to catch this. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them, or didn't even one of them condemn you? Now, I want you to see this. They brought this woman to Jesus to condemn her. Jesus says, where are your accusers? Which tells you right here, she knew he was not an accuser. How many times we just read past that? Because she could have said, well, you are. She didn't. She didn't even think of him at all like that. Why? Because he was love. He was the full embodiment of love, of grace, and of truth. He says, didn't even one of them come to condemn you? She said, no, Lord. And here's truth. Jesus responds and says, neither do I. So even though she didn't acknowledge him as being an accuser, he says, I could, but I don't. No, I have the right to be judge in this moment, but I don't. So that's grace. I'm going to let you off the hook. But here's truth. Go and sin no more. Stop doing what you're doing. I acknowledge your sin. See, many times we, we want to say, well, you know, God doesn't acknowledge sin. It was settled in Christ. Well, that's funny because the Bible says we're supposed to confess our sins one to another that we might be healed. <laughs> so that hasn't changed. Maybe the way and the manner in which it, it does. See, Jesus was respectful even in the way that he dealt with this lady. He could have put the Pharisees and just aired out all their laundry, but he dealt with them in a respectful way. See, we have to do that as well, even as believers. See, we have to, just as Jesus does here, we have to let him work in our heart to heal the lies of the enemy. You may be here this morning and you've been dealing with a false identity for decades and don't it? And the Lord's kind of prompted you this morning saying, you've been motivated because somebody said this to you or somebody did this to you or this, this happened to you or, or, you know, whatever the circumstance situation may have been. So your whole life has been motivated and really dictated by that moment all these years later. And yet God's grace and God's truth is here to not just heal you but to set you free so that you can now live in fullness of what he has for you. So you may feel condemned today. But I want you to hear something. There was a day that I was condemned. And I knew I was a sinner. And I knew that I needed the grace of God. I do not feel condemned today. Why? Because I gave my condemnation to Christ. I didn't hold on to it. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You have no reason to rehash your past and your pain. It's over. God will come in with grace and with truth to heal. That's the heart of the Father. So you don't have to stay condemned today. By the time you walk out of these doors, you can give your condemnation away and say, never again. Why? Because you come to Jesus and you give it to Him. Now you may be saved this morning, but yet you're still condemned. You still got the weight of all of your mistakes. Well, the enemy's just heaping it on you. God wants to set you free.